Thank you. We uh, don't want to take for granted in any way the way that God has provided this um, country for us and for the rights that we're given and for those who, um, from all different areas, from the veterans to um, other areas of enforcement that God protects us through. I would um, ask for you just to take a moment. We're going to do what I call, is it's a mentimeter, which is you'll need to grab your phone. And those of you who are live streamers can do this as well. And if you would do this, um, a few weeks ago, you just get that on there and you press and do what it says to do. And then I'd love for you to vote for one of these. Just a few weeks back, I had um, a, a number of couples, Grace and I did, to our home who we have been doing marriage groups with. And so we have a number of marriage groups and we do this with other leaders um, and have developed this. And so we had them over to our house just for dinner and we wanted to get to know one another. So we played Two Truths and a Lie. And so you'll see on there is the two truths and a lie um, that will come up. And so just choose the one you think with regard to myself is a is a lie compared to those other two truths. Um, are, are, are we able to get it on here any other way from people to see than just now that? Uh, let me just share then with you real quickly what they are. Um, a few weeks back, so as we did this, we, we presented um, the first one being um, I sang on stage with Bono. Second being, flew a helicopter over Minneapolis. And third was, um, imprisoned in Ethiopia. Those are your three choices, which ones are true and which one's a lie. What I want to do, though, in between as you are kind of doing that is to share with you that we have a really exciting Christmas season planned for services. So as we come through Thanksgiving, we move to Christmas. One of the things that is a highlight of our church is an event that um, calls together the women of our church. So on December 3rd, a Friday night, there is an event called Celebrate the Season. And it will be an exciting, I think, opportunity here and to see uh, Creole. It's a student um, uh, dance team. And we've had people throughout our um, families that have been a part of this, but they're going to uh, be performing that night. And so I encourage you, uh, ladies, if you would take and, and sign up either on the app or you can sign up on the website or you can call the church, but to be a part of that, that, that evening and the season as we begin to celebrate Christmas. So please note that. Okay. Um, what I would love to do is just to share with you then if the, you know what you think maybe are the truths and lies here. And so I'll start with the first one, sang on stage with Bono. That is the lie. I sang at TCF Stadium with a bunch of other people while Bono was on stage. <laughs> the second one, flew a helicopter over Minneapolis. Briefly, I tried to set up on a... Uh, anniversary date with my wife Grace. We went to a restaurant and we had rose and it was kind of like a bachelor kind of thing and we had a meal and then afterwards, you know, I asked, would you take this rose? And we went on a helicopter ride. And on that helicopter ride, I had the opportunity and everyone else was afraid, there was another couple with us, to um, actually take and fly that for a period of time. So I actually did do that. The third one is also a truth. I was imprisoned in Ethiopia. 
I went there with a group called Food to the Hungry. We had gone from Addis to a, a village called Nakemte. We were going there into another village that would be more into the hinterland of Ethiopia. And as we came through Nakemte, we stopped because all kinds of massive children and adults all came around our vehicle. It was, I think for them, interesting to see someone of white skin coming through their village. And they came running towards us. And one of the guys next to me took his camera out, and there is a law not to photograph policemen or military. Well, you couldn't see anything but a, a mass of people, and so he took a picture. This is around 2000. He had the brand new digital kind of camera, no film. Out of the group, a policeman runs up, grabs us, hold, another guy comes up, gets a hold of us, and they demand, we don't know what they're demanding until the interpreter tells us, that they want the film. And we're trying to explain to them that this camera has no film. To make a long story short, we got thrown into a holding tank of a jail in that city for about an hour or more. We had no idea what was going to happen. They, um, the rest of the people who were with us actually went back then to Addis, because then we got transferred to another, and we removed to another court system in a little larger village, and we were there for about two hours, and now, uncertain what's going to happen. And as we're there, at one point they start laughing, and we find out afterwards that our interpreter with the judge who had come in knew their families. And not because of code of law, but because of relationship. They said, ah, you can go. Now, I tell you that story because there was a great sense of uncertainty. I don't like being in jail. And it was really not good conditions at all. And I'm thinking, we're spending the night in this place. I'm not crazy about bugs and snakes and everything. I mean, really, it was dirt floor. I'm starting to think of jailbreaks. Anyway, so I say that because Paul, as we look at Acts, was stuck in prison. And one of the things that we're going to see as we go through this passage of Scripture, and we've been going through it, is that he is living with a deep sense of uncertainty. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Humanly speaking, he would feel like he was in the hands of a bunch of people who really didn't care much about him. And and, and he didn't know how he was going to get through this. And so this passage of scripture, if you begin around Acts 22 all the way through 26 and even on beyond that, we've called this series Unveiled, is because what this unveils in these chapters is the sovereignty of God from a number of different glimpses. But what's happening in Paul is this deep sense of uncertainty. As time goes on, what are you going to do, God? His future seems to be in the hands of people. Acts chapter 24, verse 50, 27 says, After two years went by, and I think Luke purposely puts this in here. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Festus, and because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. So here's Paul, still in prison. He's in all the wheels of justice, and they're moving very slowly. He's trapped in a legal system. Anybody ever make phone calls where you, you know, you're making a call to a, a corporation and, and, and you, you get the answer, and, and, and often, I, I think almost they all do this now. Um, they go, um, please listen closely as our options, our menu have changed. You get that? And then you press one, and then you press five, then you press eight. Now you're back at one. 
And then you go to two. I mean, you know what that's like. It's this endless cycle. That's exactly what's happening in Paul's situation. He's going from one place to another. In fact, he has four different trials. And, and these people who have a hold of his life at this point play by no rules except their own. They see Paul as nothing but a pawn in their hands. And they have no regard in many ways for God or even for other people, but only regard for themselves. And so as we go through this passage of Scripture, we're not going to read through those chapters 25 and 26. I'm going to share with you some of the characters that they go before just to give you a little idea what Paul's experiencing. Chuck Swindoll gives a good synopsis of this. He says, it's a good thing Paul kept his eyes on Christ during this time. The characters about to walk into the theater of the absurd would top all who had come before, and that's saying a lot. So here in the first trial in Jerusalem, he faces Ananias and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have been in that religious system, kind of like the Supreme Court. That's in Acts chapter 23. Ananias is described as someone who is ravenously evil as a high priest, whose talent for crime is Annas before him. So that's who he's before. He gets sent now through the system. They punch, you know, number three. He's moving to another second trial. They move him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And in Acts chapter 24, he comes between before Felix. Now Felix, and this is, I like what Swindoll writes this, the Teflon um, governor had the uncanny ability to immerse himself in corruption, including wife-stealing, bribery, extortion, double-dealing politics, and murder. Yet, he rose higher in society without so much as a stain or a spot. He was just one of these Teflon kind of guys that when he did evil, it just didn't stick to him. He just kept being promoted. The historian Tacitus describes Felix as an opportunist without a conscience. In another, I said, read, Felix put the fun in dysfunction. That It was fun for him, but pain for everyone else. Felix kept Paul in prison for two years. So when you come to chapter 24, verse 26, Luke writes this, Felix sent Paul for Paul frequently with the hope that Paul would offer him a bribe. So here's the characters. He's Ananias. In Jerusalem, second trial now, he goes to Felix. Felix keeps him for two years, always in hoping to and expecting some kind of bribe to get free. The governor, Felix, his term is over, and so a new guy comes in named Festus. And Festus, this is now the third trial, Acts chapter 25. It's again in Caesarea, and Festus had come before, uh, Paul come before him. And Festus is usually, this is what is said of him. He still sailed rudderless through life, more than willing to sacrifice justice for selfish gain and serve up an innocent man for expediency. Festus comes to this position of power after Felix leaves. He looks at the court cases he has to deal with. One of them is Paul. And he decides, well, with Paul, you know, I'm new in this. I want to be on a, on a good relationship with the Jewish people, because that's the people he's kind of governing over. And so he decides, I'll do them a favor. I will go ahead and bring Paul back to Jerusalem to face trial there. He shares that with Paul because he has to, because Paul's a Roman citizen. Paul doesn't want anything to do with that, because he knows the moment he steps back or moves towards back to Jerusalem, he's a dead man. 
And so he at that point appeals and says, you know what, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. As a Roman citizen, I am going to appeal to the courts of Caesar. So now Festus realizes he's got to send him to Caesar. But what happens here is Festus doesn't know how to put a charge together in such a way that it makes sense. You don't want to, as a person who's trying to rise up the Roman system, you do not want to send someone to the courts of Caesar without good justification and a good charge for why they're being sent that direction. So he's trying to figure out what can be the charge, because in his mind, he also sees him as really innocent. They all see this as some kind of religious squabble that should be settled here, but he's a Roman citizen. It just so happens that Agrippa II and Bernice, who are kings, again, they're given the ability to rule in this Judea area. And you can't see there's a lot of people ruling these places. It would be a lot like in Afghanistan when we were there. You know, you have, you have a governing force in there, then you have local governing forces, and you have other... So you have all these things going on at the same time. So Agrippa II and Bernice, they come into Caesarea which is the place of Roman power in in that area of Judea, in that Palestine area. And they come there, and they go there in order to just welcome Festus. And Festus goes, I have a great idea. I'll put Paul on trial for a fourth time. See how you can, these just buttons, and Paul is here. Everything keeps just moving along. He's in this legal trap. Comes before Agrippa and Bernice. He's trying to, Festus, get some kind of reasonable charge. And Felix and, 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 and Agrippa and Bernice, they listen to the trial, they get done, and he basically says, you know what? If he hadn't appealed to the courts of Caesar, I'd set him free. But we can't do that. So they have to come up, so we don't, are not even sure what the charge was, but he gets charged and will be sent eventually to Rome. Now here... When, when Agrippa and Bernice enter, here's something about them. They come into the town. It's now the fourth trial. It's Acts chapter 25, verse 23. It says, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp. Accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city, Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. If you read through chapter 25 and 26, You'll come away with an impression that I think a number of people, even in the first century, may have come away with, that this was Agrippa and Bernice, husband and wife. They traveled together. They appeared together at public functions. And neither of them spent much time with their own spouse. Now, the historical accounts are pretty accurate as they go back and you read about it. Um, They weren't legally married, but they spent all kinds of time together. Josephus, in Antiquities, reveals that Bernice was Agrippa's twin sister. Roman historian Juvenal, he's Agrippa's contemporary, says that a diamond ring of quite renown was given to Bernice as a present by the barbarian Agrippa. He doesn't have a good view of Agrippa to the incestuous sister in that country of Judea. You see, even in the culture of Rome, and there is not much morally that can shock Rome, a relationship between a brother and a sister that was incestuous was prohibited and looked down on. These are the characters that Paul is standing before. 
These are the hands, humanly speaking, that seem to have a hold of his future. Now, he knows. He knows that he will go to Rome because Jesus told him he would go to Rome, but he has no idea of when. And this whole passage of Scripture, 25, 24, 25, 26, one of the major themes of it is uncertainty. One of the reasons Luke writes in there, specifically it was two years, is because I think he's hearkening back to what a lot of people would recognize if you look at the life of Joseph. It says in Joseph's um, story of Joseph, chapter 40, verse 23, it says the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. However, he forgot him. And when two full years passed... Here is Joseph in one of his lowest moments, humanly speaking, thinking that the the events around him are controlled by the people that seem to have a hold of his life. And he lives with incredible uncertainty. What do you do in your own life when you're living in uncertainty? I say that because you might have trouble thinking about what that's like, except for all you have to do is think back just to this last year when we went through 2020. What made that so difficult? Is that you didn't have a way of controlling anything, right? There seemed to be this disease that was uncontrollably moving throughout our society and culture. Some of you live with uncertainty because you're in a situation that you just can't control. And in some ways, it looks like it's people that may be controlling it. Sometimes it's just your own physical illness or body or whatever is going on and is a sense of uncertainty. So one of the things I want you to think about is just we're going to go through some lessons in this time of uncertainty. And the first one is uncertainty's impact on your life. Think about it for a second. Uncertainty has a way of wearing you down. The strongest personalities are worn down by uncertainty. That's why Paul is in this place where there's this uncertain experience. That's where Joseph is in a place. And even though you may be a strong person with a lot of faith, one of the things that occurs is you start to feel worn down. And when you move into this place and you begin to experience the impact of uncertainty... You have a tendency to want to control. And when you lose control, there are natural reactions of fear that you have. All right? So for me, um, one of the ways that, you know, as you're wired, you, you want to make sure things happen. So when I feel like things aren't being um, controlled, I step in with a, my activator, strength finder part of me, and I just want to act and make something happen. Anybody have that experience? I want you to think about it for a second in in a situation you might be in. What are some of the common things that I call are reactive tendencies that you experience when you feel like things are uncertain and they're not in your control? Do you feel in those situations like you're not meeting expectations and because you're not meeting expectations you have to do something Do you take on more than you can handle and don't ask for help, fearing that you may be seen as incompetent? Do you start judging others? 
in your situation as you think about your own self? Do you struggle believing people really love you when you when you find yourself in these situations? How do you react? Do you overextend yourself? Do you find yourself feeling... Do you start comparing yourself to others and feel shame that you're not good enough? What's your tendency when you start to lose control? When uncertainty begins to wear you down? And you may be in this place right now. To get moody and melancholy. Are you easily hurt when you feel like you're misunderstood? Do you find yourself having little, little energy to exert yourself in social situations? Do you begin to doubt yourself and fear that you're being abandoned by others? I think all those things, depending on Paul's personality, had, had a sense of impacting Paul. So the first thing is just uncertainty is what I call impact. Where do you move to? In a time of uncertainty. Second thing I'd like to think about is uncertainty's test. One of the things uncertainty does is it forces you to wait. One of the toughest parts of uncertainty is you're in a situation where you are called to have to wait because you can't control it and you have a possibility of thinking, here, here's the key of it. How are you going to frame it? Is it that other people have control? And so how you frame it is so important. And one of the things that I think is really important in, in this test that takes place when you are in uncertainty is in this time of forcing you to wait, one of the things that I think God calls you to do is to look to him, to see him as the one who frames it, and to remain obedient. Here's Paul. He's in prison. He's been there two years now. But he has all through that two-year time, he could have easily at some point gone, you know what, I can rationalize giving him some money. Right? If Felix comes to me one more time, I think I could make sense of how I could give him some money. And he doesn't do it. He continually frames it as God is the one in control. There's a, um, there's a commentator who says this, that I think is really important. Paul was not so much a prisoner of Festus and Felix or other authorities. Rather, Paul was a prisoner of God's sovereign design. Ever, ever thought about it that way right now and the thing that you might be experiencing, it's, it may not be so much your boss. You think they have a lot of control and they may be exerting control, but have you ever thought of the fact that you may not be so much a prisoner of whatever circumstances or whoever that person is, but you are really rather a prisoner at this moment of God's sovereign design. And instead of framing it by seeing it as, you know, humanly speaking, people have control or other circumstances of control, what if you began to frame it and say, you know what, for a specific, and I think it's interesting that in both um, Joseph and in Paul, it talks about a two-year time. There are times, specific times, where God just comes in and he hedges you into a place where he's told you he's going to be doing this, but you have no idea when, and in that process, you want to take control. You begin to start to understand what the impact is as it's starting to wear you down. You say, okay, God, and then you start to say, okay, in this time of waiting, I'm going to keep my eyes on you, and I'm going to be obedient, even if it's tough. And then the next thing that happens is with, with, with um, 
this whole idea of uncertainty is not only does it have an impact on us and it can wear us down, and not only does it have this um, ability to test us so that we continually wait and, and seek to be obedient to God in this, keeping our eyes on him. The, the, the next thing that I think is really interesting is is the, the goal often of uncertainty, the reason God may give you this specific time that you're in, and I, I encourage you to think about it. I don't believe when you get hedged into those times, when God is calling you to something that you know is out here in those times, Times you need to just go, okay, God, I may be in your your divine sovereign prison right now, not someone else's. Because in it, you're going to do something. The goal in this is you're going to build within me the skill of trust. And I don't think we give this enough credit. I think most of us believe that trust is just something that should come natural to us, Right? Well, if you look at little kids, Jesus says be like a little kid, because little kids do what? They, they implicitly kind of trust, and then they learn there's people you can't trust, and then they find out even their parents whom they love aren't perfect, and so then you, you, you start growing up and you become very protective, and you now have to take things into your own hands, and you build a way of living, a strategy where you kind of seek to keep in control, and now God has to come in, and through circumstances like you might be going through right now, He comes in and He says, I am going to teach you the skill of trust. This is an opportunity to learn something that doesn't necessarily come natural to us. Trusting the outside forces, even other people, Jesus would say, you know, you start to learn to develop trust with people as they build character, but ultimately our trust is in God and in Jesus. And here's the thing that he wants to build, the skill that he did with his disciples. If you look at and read through the Gospels, all the different accounts of Jesus with the disciples, it was to display his glory. But you know what he was doing through that time? He was teaching his disciples how to trust. You know what I find is interesting? is they blew it again and again and again, right? You ever feel that way? You know what? I've been in these experiences in these uncertain circumstances before, but man, how come I keep in you? Maybe you took the bribe. And yet he calls you to forgiveness and he calls you to move back into it. And he says, I'm going to teach you the skill of trust. And, and here's the thing. It's not just even that he wants you to teach you trust in Jesus. The skill he's seeking to build in, the muscle of faith, is that you will have trust like Jesus. Ever thought about it? When you get to the end of your days, have you ever thought about this as being a worthy goal? Would you like to say to Jesus, Jesus, by the time I get to the end of my life, I would like to have developed the trust not just in you, but your trust that you exhibited so much in my life that it will... That when I come to meet you someday, it won't be a huge metamorphosis you know, change. But I want to try and be as mo- the most I can be like you in development of the skill of trust. Wouldn't that be a worthy goal? And so he gives you these circumstances, these uncertain things. And then the, third, the last thing on this uncertainty that he, that he does is what I call, the, there are, in uncertainty there are opportunities. There are unique ways that you can serve God. We think of uncertainty sometimes as being those times where we don't have control, that someone else may have control, so we reframe and say, okay, God, you have control of this, you're going to situation, and now you have the opportunity to not just to passively wait till the, you know, things change and you get, you get the next trial in Rome like Paul was waiting for. Paul was actively using that opportunity 
to express his trust in God. I mean, you have the opportunity, like Paul. Paul, Paul would, would take that time and he, he witnessed to a, a, this Roman commander. He witnessed to, to Felix and to Festus and to Agrippa and Bernice. And he, he, he would be witnessing to the guy that he had to be maybe um, guarded by. He would use those opportunities to tell others about Jesus. Do you know that you have an opportunity right where you're at with the things that are going on in your life? You have the opportunity as you trust Jesus to be able to tell others about it. Not saying, I you know everything's great, but you know what, in this, I don't get it. This has been really tough. This has been heartbreaking. I don't understand how this is going to end fully or when it's going to move. But I can tell you this. I know God is in control and he loves me. You get the opportunity not just to wait, but to tell others about what God is doing, even though you don't see it. You have to understand, folks, we have been living in a way in our world today that we become afraid to share with people about the fact that there's a God who truly loves us. And one of the ways people are are looking for this is not for a bunch of words, but they want to see you live it like that. We did a funeral just on Friday for Rich McClellan. And, and if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, it was a shock when Rich passed away on October 31st, that Sunday. And, and then um, we shared a little bit last Sunday at the end of the service. But as I um, was at this funeral, I was struck in that morning when I was writing my journal. I have done, I've done funerals of some pretty notable people who have positions of power and authority and who have, through those positions of power and authority, the ability to wield a lot of influence. But with Rich, here was a guy who had no title and no position and wielded influence like I have not seen often. One of the guys who came was a, a Muslim neighbor of his and he came and he shared with me after the service and he, he said, I know of two people that I've ever met that it's not about what's in here, it's about they, what they believe. Their actions match what they believe. There is an opportunity in your situation right now um, not just to talk about Jesus, but to live it out. And as you live it out in such a way, in a real way, even though you may blow it, to be able to share with people, to be able to love people, to be able to show them compassion, to come around people, to live that out, to begin to match up and say to Jesus, this is just Jesus, you might want to even say this to him right now. Jesus, I would like to take this experience I'm in. I know I'm not perfect, but I would like to take this experience that I'm in to develop the skill of trust. And in this, in this experience, I would love for you to use this as an opportunity as I love others through this whole experience that you might touch some people's hearts and lives. That's an active way of using this opportunity. You know another way that he used this opportunity? Is Paul wasn't, uh, was, a, was one of these guys who was on the go. He was constantly moving. He was pragmatic and practical, even though he could write um, quite eloquently. He was the kind of guy that it was tough just to sit down for a few moments. It is in all of his prison experiences that Paul writes letters. We wouldn't have a lot of what we have in the New Testament if he didn't use those opportunities to uniquely use some giftings that he has. I want you to think for a second. 
in a circumstance that you may be in where you're feeling this uncertainty and you, you, you don't have control and it looks like someone else has control. Maybe it's in your work world right now and you're, you've been for the last couple of years wanting a promotion and it just hasn't happened. How can God use that time for you? Not just to share about Jesus, but how can he use it for you to do some things that uniquely you are gifted to do? What does that look like for you? And I, I, I sit there and I think Paul is, is writing these letters that make such a difference in his life. So he's forced to take time to do something different. It's a guy named John Bunyan. He wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. He had been in prison for a while, wrote some letters. He then was out again. He was another one of these guys who went all over the place. And in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, one of the things that's, um, its influence is so great that for over 350 years, it's had an influence on people's lives. It wasn't till this last time that he was in prison, as he sat in that prison, he goes, you know what, God, you have imprisoned me again for a purpose, and I will use it for you. And he began to pray, and he knew it's to write, and he wrote that book. I believe in these times, and I can tell you in my own life, there's things that I'm experiencing of uncertainty, and, and to hold back from my natural reactions at times when I'm feeling worn down by it, or, or to move into a place to go, okay, God, I'm going to wait, but I'm going to be obedient. I'm only going to move in certain things that you call me to do. I'm not going to break down the divine circumstances that you may have allowed right now. But in it, I'm going to learn the skill of trust. But I'm not just going to wait for things to change. I'm going to ask you to change me so that in this change, there will be opportunities for you to change and to touch hearts and lives of others. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing again this song. And I just ask that in this moment, some of you, as you're working through this, it's time to kind of pay attention because your reactions have been probably hurting people you deeply love close to you. It's just time to acknowledge the fact, yeah, I'm, I'm worn down, Jesus. I, I, need, I need to not react in my humanness. I need your Holy Spirit right now. And I'm going to begin to reframe this now and look at you, Jesus, and go, God, you are faithful in this circumstance. I'm going to ask you to begin to exercise trust. And specifically exercise trust by saying, Jesus, in this moment, what do you want me to do? What are the opportunities around me that you have placed before me that if it wasn't for this place of uncertainty, I would probably miss them. Let Jesus speak to you.